Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today are Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And another Spike columnist, Luke Gittos. Hello. Coming up on the show, Trump's UK visit, decolonisation and voting in prisons. President Trump has torn up international agreements on refugees. He's incited hatred against Muslims. He's directly attacked women's rights. Completely volatile, unreliable and dangerous in the way that Trump is. I am even more strongly opposed to an address by President Trump in Westminster Hall. Last week, Buckingham Palace announced that Donald Trump will be making a state visit to the UK in June to mark the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn and Lib Dem leader Vince Cable have voiced their opposition to the visit and have rejected the invitation to attend a state banquet. Now plans for Trump to address Parliament look likely to be dropped after strong opposition from Speaker John Burko. Ella, what do you make of these snubs? It's ridiculous, really. I mean, not least because Jeremy Corbyn, of all people, a politician who has got into so much trouble for meeting with certain individuals, certain groups, um, who's been, you know, labelled uh, everything from a terrorist sympathiser to a you know, mad Marxist for his associations, for him to, he he knows the kind of the ridiculousness of that argument and yet he's making it against Trump. I mean, mm. he's saying that he will not meet with the president because he's uh, used racist and misogynistic rhetoric. I mean, uh, we all know the arguments about Trump using that kind of rhetoric. He is very strong worded at times. He can be pretty nasty about women and, and racist, but he is a democratically elected president. <laughs> he is the head of the United States. It's mad that they're doing this. Uh, and what it really tells you is that it's actually got nothing to do with Trump at all, mm. really. Um, it, what it, more is it's got to do is a kind of an opportunity for certain British politicians to essentially virtue signal. It's kind of very, it's like very student politicsy. It's very immature, really. And when you look at the history of who's come on state visits uh, and in relation to Donald Trump, it's not like Trump is the, uh, you know, the worst person ever to walk planet Earth. Yeah, It's quite it's quite mad that they're just picking on him. But also the people who are objecting, John Burkow. I mean, John Burkow has a history of being in the Federation of Conservative Students at the time that it was uh, putting out leaflets about hang Nelson Mandela. He's far worse than Trump. Mm. So the idea that he can get up and point the finger is faintly ridiculous. But really, this I think this hasn't got anything to do with Trump. It's just about politicians trying to grandstand. Yeah, I mean, if you think about... You know, Corbyn, aside from all the, you know, people he's accused of, of meeting, in, you know, in his earlier career. I mean, as leader of the opposition, he's even met China's Xi Jinping. I mean, yeah. are we really going to say that Donald Trump is more authoritarian than China's leader? Perhaps, perhaps not. I mean, Luke, what do you make of all of this? Well, I think I absolutely agree. It's broadly about virtue signaling. But I think it's also important to recognise the really sneery, anti-democratic nature of a lot of this commentary. So um, Rupa Huck came out and said that um, I want to do business with world leaders who are building bridges, not constructing walls, um, and that it would not be conducive to good race relations in this country. So what she seems to be suggesting is that um, a Trump visit would stoke up a kind of far-right white supremacist um, underclass in this country. Mm. Merely having Trump, Trump in the country would pose risks to our race, race relations. It's quite a striking thing to say about the British public, but also that 
that sneeriness is in, is inherent in what a lot of the people say about Trump's legitimacy. So back when he was uh, due to come before, and and again on this occasion, we've seen people saying, well, he's not truly the legitimate representative of the American people. So people like commentators like Owen Jones coming out and saying that, uh, and people like Caroline Lucas made the same point on on Question Time, basically saying that. Um, He's, he's some kind of his his legitimacy is somehow undermined by what he says and does mm. um and and i think that really of course i mean ella makes the point this is the democratically elected leader of the united states and the attacks on his legitimacy really show how he's the wrong kind of politician for our mps and i think the kind of unhinged nature with which they've treated this visit really shows more about their own willingness to kind of show off about their own uh their own virtue than it than it does about making any practical gain so we have nothing to gain from refusing Trump a state visit. Yeah. Trump has very little to lose um, from us refusing him a state visit. There's no real politics at play in the actual refusal. All of this is merely about um, individuals demonstrating that, that Trump is somehow beyond the pale. And I think it's not just wrong. It also plays into his own narrative, which is that he is, I mean, a big part of his voter base believe he, the rest of the world think he's beyond the pale. And mm. it really plays into his narrative as an outsider. So I think all of this unhinged commentary does him more favours than anything else. And I suppose um, America has has always been used as a foil for British politicians, particularly on 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 the left. Anytime you discuss, you want to discuss the NHS, we'll say, well, at least we're not like the Americans, or at least we're not as fat as them. At least we don't have um, you know crazy gun laws and things like that. But there is something about Trump that just seems to really put this kind of anti-Americanism on on steroids. I mean, it also makes me think that there's a kind of basic lack of diplomacy uh, you know nowadays obviously the conservative party are supporting um trump's visit but even even they um are failing to you know handle have normal diplomatic relations with various countries you know gavin williamson who was sacked this week famously told russia and vladimir putin to shut up and go away i mean this just seems to be a real childishness in the discussion of international affairs part of this discussion is the fact that it it would be more than anything else highly entertaining to watch him uh, at a you know pomp the the kind of pomp state dinner with the queen mm. uh, you know he's he's an odd guy but i'm afraid that's part of his shtick the reason why a lot of people a lot of people in america like him is because he refuses to bow and scrape and now the whole point is he makes a kind of fetish out of that so he just won't adhere to any rules but his own but the more that uh, <laughs> the English and English politicians sort of come across as like people with a rod up their backsides almost about this. I mean, like it's it's a state visit and yes, it's important in terms of foreign policy, but it's also a really big show. And in terms of what that means for us, for the wider population, how much we care about it, I'm not that convinced. I was trying to look for any kind of polls of how, or how people were reacting to this. The Scotsman did a poll which said that nearly two thirds of its readers thought that Trump should be honoured with a visit. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Fraser, when you say this is about kind of an anti-Americanism. I mean, Trump, for, for many people and many English politicians, Trump is like the Homer Simpson, you know, made <laughs> into real life. Um, and not just because of the permatan, because he is, the, for them, the symbol of stupid America um, who just wants to sit around and eat McDonald's and, uh, you know, say things that are unpolit- politically incorrect. It's also worth making the kind of perhaps more practised 
point about the hypocrisy of this because mm. you know we do roll out the red carpet for state visits for people like Saudi Arabia yeah but you don't have to even go to the example of Saudi Arabia I mean you know Trump was picked was identified as for his remarks about immigrants um, uh, particularly from Mexico and rightfully you know those were appalling remarks but in 2011, when we welcomed President Obama mm. on a state visit, he was in the middle of deporting 391,953 immigrants a year. You mm. know, this was the second highest year of deportations in American history, second only to 2009, which was also under his presidency. So he was in the, in the midst of mass deporting immigrants when yeah. we welcomed him. And it was more because Obama was their kind of politician. He sort of... Um, played by a particular playbook which they could uh, understand and, and there's all sorts of things to disagree with about Trump but when people call him a white supremacist mm. it, it is going completely over the top you know when there have been incidents of uh, you know for example the recent anti-semitic violence in, Amer- in America Trump does directly call it out and does undermine these claims that he is some kind of neo-Nazi, you've got to criticise Trump in terms which are precise and yeah. which actually get right what is wrong with him because the more you inflate and create... And, and more importantly, the more you turn him into some kind of globally evil anomaly, you know, that he is somehow completely morally different from... all. Well, firstly, all the other American presidents that have gone before him, but also leaders of countries like Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, etc., you really do make yourself seem completely unhinged and do the anti-Trump case no favours. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to make a donation, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Cambridge University has launched a new research project investigating the university's past links with slavery. It will focus on how the university has benefited financially from the money made in the slave trade and on the scholarship conducted at Cambridge that might have shaped the kind of racial thinking that helped justify slavery at the time. It will also look into monuments, objects, pictures and buildings at the university that evoke the colonial past. Ella, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I think this is really worrying and not just because we've seen this happen a lot. I mean, Joanna Williams has written an article for Spike this week in which she details the various institutions, University of Glasgow, University of Oxford, who have gone down a similar route of essentially trying to apologise for what everyone knows is that institutions will like that will have benefited financially or otherwise from the slave trade because that's history. That's mm. what happened. Um, the reason why I think this is so worrying is because it sets a really sort of dangerous precedent of a never-ending uh, cycle of kind of grievance culture. And some people will say that sounds very unsympathetic. Some people say, of course, you'd say that because you're not a black person. And in fact, when I was listening to the Today programme a few days ago, I heard one of the professors who's sort of spearheading this campaign and this investigation at Cambridge, and he he was sort of beginning every sentence almost with, well, I am a white guy. And there's that kind of apologism to it. But actually, what this is saying is that uh, kids, students who are going to university today are negatively affected in one way or another by the fact that the University of Cambridge or other institutions at some point in history benefited from the slave trade or from slavery. It's 
it's very hard to see how that can be true. Uh, and that's not because that's not contesting the abhorrence of slavery, but that's saying that it's, it's sort of quite a far-fetched argument to make to say that simply because ancestors suffered a specific historical wrong that a century down the line, mm. uh, that people will still be suffering from that. More importantly, it singles out the black and ethnic minority students at Cambridge as being... Uh, somehow uh, oppressed, but also incapable of dealing with um, the day-to-day life of university to the same level as their fellow white peers. I mean, it's actually a really quite insulting line to take in relation to BME students, which says that they have no agency, essentially. They are just being oppressed by the wrongs of history. And as Joanna says in her article, you could take this down any route. I mean, you could, yeah. I could, as the, as the you know daughter of Irish people, take up a claim uh, at Sussex, my university, and say, hang on a second, weren't you, as an English university, benefiting from the oppression of the Irish during the famine? I mean, any route you could take it down. I mean, you could argue that capitalism oppresses people and mm. that's, you know, we are still living in a capitalist system in which universities are operating. I mean, it's never ending. And really what it's, it's an inability to let history go uh, and and a kind of symptom of our grievance culture today, which really is quite ugly. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And um, of course, there's nothing wrong with the university, you know, finding out what it did in the past, you know, but it is the the implications behind it are, are what's worrying. And it's and it's it's similar to the decolonized movement more broadly. You know, it, it does sound very nice on the surface. You know, it sounds like a call for more scholarship, a greater diversity of writers, a greater diversity of sources. You know, who could object to that? But then when you look, examine the kind of claims that they make more deeply, you know, the suggestion is basically, as you say, Ella, you know, that ethnic minority students are different, that ethnic minority students cannot possibly understand this so-called white curriculum or that they're constantly under under assault by the presence of things like statues like that of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel. And the worst thing about this is that it makes you realise it's actually reviving the kind of racial thinking, you know, that we should, I believe, be going away from. And and it relies on some really patronising stereotypes. So one of the, you know, really grim examples of this is that, you know, Kingston University changed its geography course because it assumed that ethnic minority students would struggle, and I quote, to grasp concepts such as the rural idyll, you know, so they're saying very explicitly that ethnic minority students are, are, are somehow, for some reason, God knows why, incapable of you know handling education in the same way that their white peers are. And I, and I think that's a real problem. I think it's also right to situate this in a broader climate where academic freedom is really under attack. Because if you look at the terms on which this investigation has been launched, it's not just looking at, did we get this money or that money? Because all of that information is probably publicly available anyway, and certainly wouldn't take two years to find out. When you look at the sub heading of this uh, announcement, you see that what they're actually going to be doing is assessing whether scholars at Cambridge reinforced race-based thinking during Brit- during Britain's colonial era. Mm. You see this in the terms of all of these investigations. What they're actually doing is looking back across their whole history and reassessing scholarship mm. in the light of wokedom. Yeah. And I think this is part and parcel of actually wokedom ripping out the heart of one of our, one of our most important educational institutions. And if you look at Cambridge is a really serious offender in this regard. So this follows December in 2018. uh, They came under fire for awarding the Toby Jackman Newton Research Fellowship to a guy called Noah Carl, who had promoted some theories about um, 
race differentials in, in intelligence um, and then has very recently terminated that fellowship. So um, had has basically cowed to public pressure to remove this scholarship from this young man um, on the basis of a, a public open letter yeah. calling into calling him into judgment, not, not because of his scholarship being terrible, but because of this public letter. And, you know, they've rescinded the, a, a visiting fellowship to Jordan Peterson, the famous Canadian academic. And now just today I saw that they've uh, come under fire yet again for hosting the campaign group Justice for Men and Boys. Mm. Uh, and it looks like they're going to cancel this event that they've um, put out about um, this, young, this men's rights activist group. So <clears throat> I think we have to see this as part of Cambridge really crumbling under the weight of wokedom. It can no longer have uh, the kind of intellectual or... Or, or, or moral authority to say, look, we have a particular history, but that history has made huge contributions. You know, a lot of the key figures in the anti-slavery movement came out of Cambridge University, you know, Wilberforce and others. The academy is really being shown up to be weak-willed here and spineless because uh, every time when these um, uh, these attacks on uh, institutions, which is what they are, they're basically calling into question the foundation of these institutions... The academy folds mm. straight away, and and a lot of these um, Cambridge academics will sign up to a letter calling their own history into question. Um, I think it's deeply, deeply concerning. You're right. I mean, there is this very sort of anti-historical view where the the past is just seen as this, you know, long continuum of horrors. But as you say, look, you know, the past includes not only slavery but also anti-slavery. We've known for a very long time that slavery is evil those things are kind of tossed to one side in favor of this you know almost self-flagellation I suppose but also it's really important to remember that the past is full of horrors and the reason the means through which you remember that is through studying it studying the history of it knowing the history of it and Luke is absolutely right to say that this isn't about um, shedding more light on the slave trade or learning more about our history I mean actually as it happens the history of slavery is widely taught is widely taught mm. it's not like there's a level of ignorance about this in the UK it, you know rightly so kids get taught about it what these campaigners who are sort of pushing the, whether it be decolonization, you know, stopping the curriculum from being so white or the roads must fall groups, this kind of, um, you know, diversifying politics. What it's really saying is kind of whitewash history, whitewash being an unfortunate word there, you know, mm. uh, completely forget, let's forget and put aside the reality, which is that life was very different a hundred years ago. And for lots of people, it was a lot worse. Forget that if you uh, just pretend that we always lived in the kind of free and tolerant world that we live in today, it only means something that we don't believe in slavery because we know what slavery is. It only means something that we live in a democracy and we you know, favour freedom and diversity and all these positive things because we know where we've come from. And so the future for this, if it goes ahead and, you know, there's suggestions that Cambridge might have to potentially pay financial reparations, mm. that they might have to do like other colleges and, you know, institute a new course specifically tailored towards addressing the wrongs of history. All of that will be to basically pretend that and apologise for stuff that has already happened. It's a really anti-intellectual and anti-historical viewpoint.
You're listening to the Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps people find the show. Senator Bernie Sanders has called for prisoners to be given the right to vote. In a town hall event, he was asked whether even the Boston Marathon bomber should be allowed to vote in elections from prison. Sanders responded that the right to vote was a fundamental element of our democracy and that even very bad people should have that right. Luke, uh, you wrote about this this week. What are your thoughts? Well, looking into the American discussion, there's a lot of differences between the ways it's talked about in America and the ways it's talked about here. The vast majority of uh, American states uh, allow convicted felons um, to vote in elections after they've served their time and um, after they've gone through any period of parole. Um, what Sanders and, and some other on the some others on the more radical left uh, in America are calling for is actually for for prisoners to be able to vote. So people who are still serving their time. And ironically, because prison sentences in America are much longer than they are here, that actually means a lot more because you have more people in America serving sentences that they will never be released from. So yeah. they, they vote, they would be in theory voting solely with a view to completing, you know, in relation to issues that affect them while they're in custody. Um, now, so, but the other reason why this comes up in America uh, in, in a debate like this, the town hall presidential uh, candidacy uh, debates, is because it's tied up with other things. So um, incarceration in America is seen as a social justice issue. Although the, the statistics are getting better, black people are far more likely um, th than whites to be incarcerated. They're impacted by the, the war on drugs that was kick-started in the 1980s and 1990s. And the incarceration rates for, for blacks over the last few decades has way exceeded whites, even though that's historically now getting better. So you have now a discussion around voting, which is tied up with race and other social justice issues, which mm. to some extent is, is justified. Um, and I think it's absolutely right to draw attention to the fact that in America, once you've served your sentence, being a convicted felon in America is really, really difficult. They, they make it incredibly hard to get jobs, to find work, to apply for normal social benefits. And on top of that, uh, in some states, um, you can't vote. So you mm. can't change your, you can do nothing to have your voice heard. I, I, I sympathize with some of the direction that the discussion is going. But as I point out in the piece, Americans are pretty liberal and progressive and sensible on this. So the vast majority of American states allow, allow people to vote after they've served their time and after they've completed parole. Only two states maintain a blanket ban on felons uh, ever voting again. Um, and Florida became the last state to actually change that by a referendum uh, in 2018. So the, the process is changing. But the reason why Sanders' remarks are so peculiar is that he's calling for all prisoners to be able to mm. vote. So everyone from whether you've been sent to prison for one week or for the rest of your life ought to be able to vote in a general uh, in, in, in a presidential election, uh, which is why he was asked about the Boston bomber. You know, yeah. what, would you even allow someone with no prospect of release to vote? And he said yes. And I think that that really illustrates the problem with this, which is that um, when voting and voting rights get tied up with this discussion around social justice and become, um, I think, elided with that discussion, you end up reaching absurd conclusions because I just don't think the majority of Americans would, would like the idea of the Boston bomber being able to vote <laughs> or anyone who's been convicted of multiple homicides to mm. be able to vote. They may be more sympathetic to people who are only serving, you know, happen to be serving a three-month sentence yeah. at the time of a presidential election. But the line has to be drawn somewhere and the line is drawn very sensibly across America at the moment. The point I made in the piece is that really what we have to avoid in our discussion around voting and voting rights is is not devaluing the vote. Yeah. 
and not uh, sort of removing it from its importance in social life. So if you suggest that someone who is uh, incarcerated for the rest of their life should be able to vote, what you're really saying is that your your vote is merely a matter of pulling a lever or ticking a box. Mm. Um, It bears no reality or or bears no relation to your lived experience. And obviously prisoners experience the world in a very, very narrow window. They experience it solely through the window of incarceration. And it creates all sorts of other terrible practical problems so you'd create a huge block of voters Mm. that um candidates would have to appeal to um and people who would presumably be voting on quite a a narrow basis in 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 the interest of people who are incarcerated so i think it would radically distort actually the democratic process in america it would devalue the meaning of the vote um for americans and it would do nothing to solve what are lingering problems in the american justice system connected with incarceration and race etc. Yeah, I think I think that's right and and I, I do you know I sympathize a lot with with Sanders and his you know views on criminal justice reform and every you know I'm sure everyone is aware that the American prison population is absolutely staggering compared with with the rest of the world, you know, Russia and all these other authoritarian regimes don't even come close into the amount of people that you know are being locked up. And that's clearly disenfranchising vast numbers of people as a consequence. Um, but again, you know, deal with that issue rather than handing prisoners the vote. And again, Sanders is right to have concerns about, you know, voter suppression. This is a major, major issue in in the US. You know, Wendy Kaminer wrote in Spiked uh, last year about last year's elections and how a number of sitting governors were basically overseeing their own races. And, and in, in Georgia, Kemp, the governor, was able to purge 1.5 million voters from the electoral roll blocked 50,000 new um, black voters from registering. You know, Florida had malfunctioning machines, miscounting. Again, the governor overseeing his own race. I mean, there are enormous problems with both the prison system and the electoral system in, in, in the US, but those issues should be should be dealt with head on, not enfranchising those, you know, people like prisoners who have, have rightly been deprived of, of some rights, I think. Well, Luke makes a very good point in his piece about the fact that the vote is active. And he uses a quote mm. from Sylvia Pankhurst that she, when she was fighting for the vote in the UK, she said that she wanted the vote with a capital V. It's this active thing that m- most importantly, that a citizen takes part in. And if you are a prisoner. I mean, we can have a whole different discussion about prison and the nature of prison and what it should be doing, rehabilitation or punishment, all of those things. But as it stands in the moment, if you go to prison, it is a form of punishment and your rights are taken away from you. And you do not, as Luke says, you do not live the same life as someone who is not in jail. And so therefore you are not an active citizen in the same way that you were when you were free. And the important thing about that active role is that the vote should mean something. Um, it is not simply a right, this kind of passive thing, you know, a right that is gifted to you. It is something that you have to earn by being a citizen that is interested in politics, interested in society, engaged and loyal to the values of society. And that word loyal is quite important because obviously if you transgress society's rules, um, and, you know, we can talk about the fact that mm. America is very strict when it kind of and, and choosy about who it decides to penalise for transgressing society's rules. You go to jail. That That is the system as it stands at the moment. So it's it's quite an odd suggestion by Sanders to do this and it would be wildly unpopular. But I mean, as you say, Fraser, it could, he could easily tackle this in a different way, which is just to say, you know, you could very quickly 
release a huge number of people from jail, huge numbers of young black guys from jail who are in there on petty drug offences, for one. In the UK, we've got a similar problem with a rise of people being penalised for, you know, you've got mums being penalised for not paying their TV licences. You've got um, people going in for petty drug uh, cases. I mean, the nature, we have to look at the nature of prison and what it's for. And you want to, uh, well, I believe that prison should be at least a large part about rehabilitation, which means that you want to encourage people to become active citizens. But what you don't, a way to really undermine that desire to want to be an active citizen is to devalue one of the fundamental parts of being a citizen, which is which is defining the society in which you live through through the vote. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.